Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you here with us for episode 59. So we mentioned last week that there were a few things in the news, and we were going to take those things one one topic at a time, which means now we're, we're a couple weeks late talking about Biden's new COVID plan as well as his announced COVID uh, vaccine mandate that's going to be implemented through OSHA and affect, I think the estimate is about 100 million Americans could potentially be impacted by that mandate. The I, I don't believe OSHA has come out with the, the official the official documentation yet. I, I've been watching that pretty closely as I work for a company that employs over 100 employees and have not yet been vaccinated. So this is going to directly impact me as once it comes into effect. And so I know nothing's happened yet because everyone in my business is like, what's going to happen? Because we haven't been told anything. But anyways, that is, it has been announced, it is coming, and we do have a decent idea of what it's going to look like, which is pretty simple, which is that OSHA is going to require any business with over 100 employees to require that associates, that employees are vaccinated or that they get weekly testing. We don't know who's going to be paying for that testing. We don't know what the requirements are going to look like for that testing. We don't know exactly how that's going to be implemented and verified by OSHA. But we do know the general plan. Yeah, it's, it is what it is. Um, I've seen, at least thus far, there's been no successful challenges to it. I don't know what the state of that is legally, if there's still a chance that it'll get thrown out uh, by a, the Supreme Court or by some other you know, by some other means for not meeting the standard that is required for these kind of emergency authorizations. But so far, it remains the plan. It remains what's going to be happening, whether you like it or not. And in case you were, this is surprising at all, we don't care for it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, spoiler alert. It's funny, Dan, because, you know, we've been talking about talking about Biden in the past and something I've said, at least at least in private conversations, I'm not sure I ever said it here, but if I hadn't, you know, I'll say it now. And that's that that one of the things Biden campaigned on very strongly was how he was going to end this pandemic and how he was going to do things differently than Trump and how Trump had completely botched it and Biden was going to fix it. And then Biden gets into office and the main thing he does is continue on schedule with Trump's vaccine rollout and complete what Trump started in terms of the vaccine, get the vaccine pushed out. None of that is an original Biden idea, right? It's just a continuation right, right. of what's already going on. Yeah, it worked through the state governors. Yeah. Uh, didn't try and bypass them in any way. Mm-hmm. Did exactly continue to negotiate with them. And then... And then the only other thing he did that was different than Trump is he whined about the American public not listening to him. Otherwise, he hasn't really done a whole lot that's different than Trump. You know, he's been very upset that people aren't getting vaccinated, but hasn't done a whole lot, which yeah. which hasn't exactly lived up to, to his campaign promise. <laughs> and And as COVID cases have continued to rise, it's become more and more of a political problem for Biden, because this is one of his cornerstones of his presidency, is how he handles COVID. That's how he's going to be remembered. 
And that's why, for the past few weeks, he's been pushing against the unvaccinated so hard. You know, we've talked before about the fact that even if you got a 100% vaccination rate in the United States, and I'm saying 100%, that wouldn't have stopped the Delta variant from spreading because it would have come from, from you know, from where it originated, India, which was not in the United States. We've discussed this before. But the fact is, is to Biden, that doesn't really matter. What matters is that he needs to have someone to blame for the fact that he has completely failed in, in honoring his, his campaign promise, the campaign promise that people are most interested that he honor. You know, presidents always come short on their campaign promises, but they also understand they need to do at least <laughs> a couple things in order to get reelected. And, and, and he's failed when it comes to COVID, and that's why he's, he's raised the unvaccinated as the boogeyman that's responsible for the fact that he's failed. And this mandate yeah. is simply a continuation of that. Because when you, when you, let me interject one quick interject thing. When you, say, you, say, you say he failed. I think that is exactly the right word, and I think a lot of people will be upset about it. Um, it's exactly the right word because what matters is not what Biden did or how well it worked. That, you, can, you can table that. That's not a... To say Biden failed is not a critique of his policies and things. We, we have critiqued his policies and ideas at other times. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is the numbers are going to look like he failed. Right? The fact that Delta comes in and you get a huge spike right now, right? this is not what was supposed to happen. There was a story he told. That story has not turned out to be true. Well, and that's, right? it, and it's that's, not, it's not and what the world looks problem, like. And that's the problem, Dan, is that what he said is that all those COVID deaths, every single one that occurred during Trump's presidency mm -hmm. occurred because Donald Trump failed and he was directly responsible for them because right. of his failed policies. And so a lot of people have to be thinking, well, if Trump's responsible for every COVID death under Trump's presidency, which is what Biden argued, doesn't that then follow that Biden's responsible for every COVID death under his presidency. See, what, and I think, I think what you're, why you're clarifying there, Dan, is that you're saying we don't believe that Biden or Trump were responsible for the COVID deaths <laughs> that occurred under their presidency. The problem is, is that Biden made that the argument. Biden, yes. Biden mm -hmm. basically created the rules for this game. And now according to the rules that he has created, he's failing miserably. Because yes. he didn't say, hey, I'm going to do things better and I'm going to improve things. He said, I'm going to end this pandemic. Yes, and there's been a massive shift in independence. To. Yes, there's been a massive shift in independence, in part because of Afghanistan and in part because of COVID. Yeah, and, and yeah, uh, and the, the two things he's he's going to uh, have to be remembered have to answer for. to the things he's going to be remembered for. <laughs> yeah, does not make him look good, and so he's doing everything he can to change that. Right, which is why, which comes to your point there, which is that he needs something he can point to that says, despite the fact I'm doing the right thing, mm -hmm. it's failed. Why? Afghanistan, it was the collapse of the, of the Afghanistan military, Afghani government. Yeah, mm -hmm. their military. Um, here, it's a little tougher. And as you said, he's making the case that it's the unvaccinated and thus this vaccination rollout is supposed to solve that. You know, it's, it's, it, <laughs> I've, I've heard people estimate that we're 80 plus percent COVID immune at this point because of the, if you count the cases of people who got it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then in the natural immunity, which is going to be superior to the vaccine uh, that they would have from it. Um, that's, 
it's it's hard to believe that it, that raising those numbers is going to have a massive impact. As you said, the Delta variant doesn't seem to care that much. It matters. It matters. It, but as far as the optics go in the raw case count, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it wouldn't change that much. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But anyways, that brings us back to to what's actually happening on the ground, which is Biden's solution is he's going because he understands that if he passes an executive order mandating that every adult in the United States who's medically eligible to has to be vaccinated, he knows that two things are going to happen. The first is it's likely going to be struck down. And if it's not going to struck down, get struck down, he's going to have so much political pushback that it won't be worth it. You know what I mean? That it that it could it could in many ways destroy his presidency. And and that's something that he's not willing to do. Right. And so instead, he's trying to do a workaround. It's interesting because he did a similar thing a while back with the uh, eviction moratorium, where the eviction moratorium was was going to be struck down, and so he he had the uh, CDC tweak it and try and get it to sneak by by changing the wording of it, and then it got struck down anyways. And and what you're seeing here is something similar, where he's going to use an agency, OSHA, you know, the occupational, what is it, occupational safety and health. What's the Association? A? Administration. I don't know. Administration. I, I couldn't right. remember what the A was. I wanted agency, to say agency, but I'm glad I didn't because it's administration, which is totally different. Administration <laughs> funny. and agency, fundamentally different. As you go through that, I realize I've never actually thought about it or heard the name. <laughs> Just OSHA is all I know. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't even realize I thought there was a C in it now nope. that you mention it. There's, there's, there's no <laughs> C. I, I've got our, I've got our, uh, our episode notes up here, and I went ahead and changed the letters for you, Dan, because because Dan was over there <laughs> trying to spell ocean, and uh, that's not right. Minus the N. <laughs> Who knows what that would have stood for? Anyways, but now now I've lost my train of thought, Dan. All, all I'm thinking about is OSHA and oceans and how they're going to save the dolphins. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned that he's he's using agencies to try and do a workaround. And this is in the same way that when we were talking about Afghanistan, one of the things that we thought would be helpful would be to talk about the disconnect between the people who who run the policies and the people on the ground who vote for these politicians and things and how, you know, how propaganda was necessary in almost every case in all of the major wars to to bring the people to the opinions of the rulers. And that and that by seeing that it might change your perception of what it means to unite in a war effort, right? And, and when you see the propaganda arm necessary to make that happen, when you see the, the fact that the interests of the average person just doesn't align with that, um, we thought that might be more useful than, than more noise on top of the already very noisy critique of the details of the Afghanistan withdrawal, which you've no doubt gotten into if you're interested in the politics at all. In the similar case, what's interesting here is that this workaround is possible and looks like it might even be successful, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You have Congress, you have the president and the executive branch that he represents, his immediate officers and things. Uh, and you have, who are all exercising his authority. They have no authority beyond him. Um, and then you have the Supreme Court. And none of these are making this call. This is, this is the call of some other group that has all of the force of law and how that works and why that works is crazy. 
it, it's well, very and, different. And, and yeah, as, as we're looking at this, Dan, you know, the question comes, as you've already raised, is this law going to be struck down? You know, what are the legal challenges that are going to come against this law? And like we said before, if it was an executive order, it'd be very different. And so I was curious, you know, what are the what are the the legal hurdles that are going to have to be passed for this law to get through? And so I so I looked it up, and it's actually it's crazy. So the Department of Labor, you know, which OSHA is underneath, has the ability to issue, in quotes, an emergency temporary standard that's designed to protect workers from new hazards, as long as, in quote, employees are exposed to grave danger. And it's necessary to protect them from that danger. And I'm reading that language and I'm like, oh, yeah, this thing is going to stand. This yeah. thing is going to stand. It's going to stand just fine. Which, of course, then begs the question, how much power does OSHA have? You know what I mean? How much power does the right, Department right. of Labor have, this this organization, this this administration, this agency to be able to issue something that has about as much power as a large executive order that would be struck down and yet have it stand. Right. Or even a, a you say executive order. This is a, in a lot of ways, it's, it's more comparable to a law. This is a new policy being implemented on the way businesses work and, uh, and the requirements they face. No, and uh, I, I compare it to an executive order because that's often how executive orders discuss. Yes. The executive orders people are interested in are the ones where the president starts pushing into legislative realms when yes, he yes, tries yes, yes, to, yes. to legislate by decree because we all believe that the Department of Labor is a branch of the executive government. And so if the Department of Labor is passing a law, it is very similar in function as yes, if yes, the yes, president right. is is – is signing an executive order because it's, right. it's clear here that this is not the Department of Labor acting on their own. This is Biden's plan that is being implemented through the Department of Labor. Yes, which is so, which is so odd. And, the, and you're right that, that that does then make it the useful standard comparison because you'd say that the executive branch's power is concentrated into the hands of an executive. That's the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. The president can give orders, uh, you know, he can receive counsel from whoever he wants. He can give orders to whoever he wants to carry out his will. But there is no power, executive power, beyond the power of the president. So if an executive order is insufficient to do something, an agency that is derivative of that power. That is underneath the president. <laughs> right, right. It seems impossible to get to by reason any way in which they could then have more power than the president mm -hmm. <laughs> as, mm -hmm. as this subsidiary of the president whose authority is exclusively what the president has given them. Mm -hmm. Or uh, that's, that's not how it works, yeah, which is it the problem. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> but in theory, right, as being part of the executive branch, as being under the executive, they would be limited to that same executive authority that is given in the the constitution even even with the developed constitutional laws you're saying the president can't do this yet osha can and if that disconnect isn't weird and worth getting into this is this is something so common actually at this point in time osha is not doing something unique here it's doing something actually incredibly ordinary mm -hmm. just in a way that's far more public than we normally see so we want to get into that a little bit dig into these agencies. Some people have called them a fourth branch of government. And well, the title is probably warranted to at least some extent, though they're not technically a fourth branch. 
And the way the Constitution is designed is, hopefully this is, I'm pretty sure anybody listening to this is going to feel like I'm talking down to them. I get that you probably get this, right? You've got the three <laughs> branches. No, but but you want to establish, you want to establish the clear groundwork. common yes, ground. Yes, yeah, yes. exactly. This is, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is going to be a refresher for everyone, but, right. but even for me, Dan, so that I understand your full argument, carry on. <laughs> Tell me about so the this... three branches. How does a bill become a law? How does a bill? <laughs> I start singing a song. And I was dancing waiting around. for you to. <laughs> Not happening. Oh, uh, I'll watch so the video you... later. <laughs> so you get the Supreme Court, right? The Supreme Court. I'm going to just set aside is is they decide things in a case and controversy that ends up uh, being very narrow in consideration. They have a lot of power at this point, but in part it's because it's been. Because the others are not towing their weight. Most of the power is in the legislative branch. The legislative branch makes the laws. The laws are enforced by the executive. Now, in terms of foreign policy, the executive has far more power than that. They have some legitimate freedom to make calls under the Constitution to do mm -hmm. all kinds of things. Uh, but as far as domestic affairs go, almost all of the power that's relevant is in, is in Congress. Congress makes the laws, the executive branch enforces them. If there is some kind of, of problem, some kind of uh, case and controversy, right, that may pit two laws against each other, then you, you bring in the Supreme Court to, mm -hmm. to mediate that. Mm -hmm. um, and that can have a real impact on the laws, but it's a far cry from the power of being able to create a law. And the laws are limited by are limited by certain constitutional principles, or at least were at one point. At this point, you can essentially make a law about. There's there's a lot of things you can make laws about. There's still some limits. There's still things you can't do that would be struck down, even by uh you know in a bipartisan way by the Supreme Court. Yeah, but in general, the things that Congress can make laws about are are not just fractionally mm -hmm. larger than they were. You know, 200 years ago, but we're talking right. exponentially larger than they were 200 right. years ago. I mean, just recently I mentioned, uh, you know, the Interstate Commerce Clause and how that's been abused to allow the federal government to make laws on most issues that they really never should have. Yes. In terms of how of the... it was constitutionally structured at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yes. The Commerce Clause is, is one of the most clear places where the the Constitution has been interpreted in such a way that the power of Congress has has evolved in ways that were far beyond the text and beyond the uh, the initial meaning. So, well, and I, I the executive I, branch. Sorry, go, yeah, no, no, go ahead. I, I'm not I'm not sure how you're you're planning on telling the story, and so I didn't I didn't want to steal your 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 story. I was just bringing that up to talk about the fact that the Congress has grown so much in scope in terms of what they're doing that you reach a point where it's difficult for them to do that do that anymore but i believe that i'm derailing your story and so i just want you to continue and i'm gonna shut up for a little bit <laughs> that is that is the key detail here and uh the point i was going to make before jumping to that is just that the executive branch was extremely limited really in what it can do with regard to laws mm -hmm. it can execute them now it turns out if you know if you know anything about a prosecuting attorney, one of the most interesting things about a prosecutor is that at any given moment they have more cases. Generally, this most of the time, and depending on where you are, this is all the time. They have more cases than they could possibly prosecute fully because they don't have the resources to really treat all of them uh, with equal weight, and so they actually end up with quite a bit of discretionary power. Because of that, 
And that's absolutely true with the government. And I think has been true basically forever. Of course, if you have less things to do, that's less true. Um, but, but there are often times where there is discretionary power in the, in the enforcing agency because it can decide how to allocate, allocate the resources to mm-hmm. deal with it. How much attention are they going to give a particular issue matters. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and at this point, that gives the executive massive discretion. There are a number of laws where they literally are like, you know what? This is a law and I'm not going to enforce it. And it used to be they would have to make a pretext about that. They'd have to be like, because we don't have the funding or we don't have the, <laughs> or because this other thing is such a big issue. A good example of that is, is the limbo state of our immigration laws, which was making big news. And, uh, right now there's every time there's a large influx, a large group of people come in, it makes news. Um, the, what happens with our immigration laws varies immensely depending on the executive. But this brings us to an, an interesting problem. As it grows, the executive naturally gets more discretionary power as there are more issues to tackle in a variety of resources and forms. And the grayer it gets, the more discretion you have. The more complex it gets, the more discretion you have. With the legislative body, this is absolutely true. With the turn of, with the, the beginning of kind of the progressive era, the, the late 1800s into the early 1900s, the, it's going to culminate and really take off with FDR and the New Deal. You have this, this immense change in political theory that people will look back at that time. They'll say, what happened is you get this response where due to changing economic circumstances, the government has to adapt to those and it changes. That's, that's half true at best. <laughs> due to changing economic theories, the government decides it's going to do more. Is a, is a big part of that, right? You mm-hmm. get, you get a real sense of people who are looking at, at Germany and the planned economy of Germany pre-World War I and even into World War I and then later into Russia and the planned economy there and, and to Italy and with Mussolini and different things. They get, you get these moments where they're looking at these planned and planned is a word that's, that comes up a lot there, these planned economies. And they think that is the future because it's so much more effective. Now, I don't think it's actually I think it's actually much worse in every single way, other than obtaining the goals of the politician who is doing the planning. But that aside, you get this massive growth in what government is trying to do and how it's trying to micromanage the economy. This is where a lot of the changes in that interstate commerce clause you mentioned really become egregious. They really, really start to look gross. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, where it's, where it's truly an abuse of, of language, what happens to it. But this is where, this is also where agencies begin to appear and become really cemented. But it's really, really strange how they appear because you'd think they're a part of the executive branch. So what happens is the president creates them. That's not what happens. That's not how they start. What happens is the legislative branch wants to do all these things. So instead of saying, this is the law, enforce it, they say, this is the goal, make it happen, and importantly, keep it up to date. Because so much of what they want to do, the economic micromanagement, involves adjusting prices to meet changing circumstances on a regular basis. A good example of this is a Supreme Court case called Hampton and Cove versus United States. You get a a tariff act in 1922 uh, that empowers the executive to equalize differences in costs of production at home and the costs in competing foreign countries. And this is, you're going to use tariffs to equalize the costs of goods 
production at home with competing countries. We don't want this country with their planned economy to get ahead of us and be able to undercut us. So what we're going to do is we're going to put tariffs on their goods so that our prices stay competitive. This thing is so old. This is, this is like basically what Trump ran on with China. <laughs> and, and it's a major policy of, of this era. Um, and eras before it. It's a, it's, it's this, this I, economic idea and the ideas that drive it won't seem to die. In fact, they seem to get stronger with every year, unfortunately. But that aside, the goal here is given a very clear goal. We want these prices equalized. And there's more. I'm summarizing the bill. Uh, and the Supreme Court looks at this and goes, can the legislative branch pass an act that allows the president that kind of discretion? And they go, yeah, yeah, you know what? That's fine. That's fine. They affirm the case. It goes through. And the idea is the president, what he's doing is really clear. In, in this case, it's probably not the president. Maybe it's people he appointed, right? Mm -hmm. it's, but it's given but still, to the president. it's a function of the executive branch. It's a function of the executive branch. The legislative has made a law with a clear, intelligible principle. Intelligible principle is a big, a big term that they use in these constitutional law cases regarding this. They need an intelligible principle by which that limits the power of what the, the president can do. Mm -hmm. And they go, that's, that's fine. And in a lot of ways, this case is the beginning is the seed in some sense of, of what comes with these agencies. A second case, Schechter Corp Corporation versus the United States. In this, you get the National Industrial Recovery Act, which is huge. Well, and during... Dan, before you go into that, I want to provide a brief summary Please. of, of, of what, what just happened here. Cause as, as someone who's less yeah, familiar stop me at any you, time, this historical I can, account, I can see where, where the confusion would come in. Basically, what you're saying is that previously, Congress had the ability to pass laws. The president and the executive branch had the ability to enforce them. But up until this point, for the most part, Congress would be passing static laws. You know, a great example, you know, you're talking about tariffs would be they pass a tariff, so a tax on imports and exports of a set amount. Mm -hmm. And then... And then after they do that, the president would then be – an executive branch would then be responsible for enforcing that static law. The law is not changing. The tariff stays the same. The president uses his resources to enforce it. Done. Simple. Now with this new case and this new legislative function, the legislature is saying we need you – to regulate the prices given this certain principle this is our goal is to compete with these other company uh, companies excuse me other countries <laughs> is like companies because what they're talking about they're describe, describing the country as if it's a company compete with these other countries economically and in order to do that we want you to do a b and c and then the president and the executive branch forms an organization to then implement that goal and so at that point, they aren't just enforcing a static law. They actually are regularly changing that law in order to adapt to the different needs at different times. And so in some ways, their regulations are changing the law, but the Supreme Court has approved that because they're still acting as an enforcer. And so it starts to enter this grayer area of how the executive branch functions. Is that a yeah, good summary? Well, yeah, that's a perfect summary. What you'd say is the, the law is that the prices are equal. How that functions depends on the executive. And you could say there was a line crossed here. Well, and or there how wasn't. it's interpreted Maybe this, the, to some yes, degree, this right? Is, right, 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 right. There's always room for interpretation. And if you actually know the way economics works, 
there's massive room for interpretation here. But in their mind, that's not what they're looking at. They're not looking for a loophole here. This is, this is a practical problem. Look, we have a better way to plan the economy, but it requires us to adapt this all the time. And we, if we spend all our time adapting this, we can't be doing other things. Do you want Congress to spend its time updating this law every month or how, I don't know how often it would actually need updating, but, you know, checking these numbers, running these numbers, surely the legislature, this legislative branch's time is better spent with other matters, right? So you get Well, it's not just a matter of time. It's a matter of the democratic aspect is that each time they discuss it, they have to get the votes. If they don't get the votes, the price can't Mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. And so if political winds change, then this whole goal dissolves. It can't happen. Yes. Yes. Which is, which is critically important if you think that the winds might change. You, you've pointed out something really useful. Because the winds always change. The winds always change. It's much harder to undo a law than it is to stop the passage of a law. You can stop the passage of a law relatively easy compared to passing a law that gets rid of a law already in place. People stop laws from passing all the time. People do not undo laws that have been passed very often. Very rare once it gets passed. So this is a way in which to make the will of the legislature that's there now permanent. Uh, that's, that's, that is worth pointing out because that's, that's clearly where this trends towards. And you can, you uh, can see, it, see it even more clearly today yeah. when you look at agencies and you look at systems that have so much momentum and power that the idea of removing them is anathema. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you, you talk about like a great example is social security. The data is clear that social security is not sustainable, which means social security is going to collapse, which is obviously a problem. But social security is not just a law. It's a living, breathing organism that needs to be it needs to be killed in order to be replaced with something. And and that's not as easy as Dan saying as not passing a law. You have to do something, and in order to do something, you have to have the political capital to do so, which no one's ever been able to muster because there are so many people who currently benefit from the social security system as it stands, which is why everyone looks at it and says the inevitable result is that social security will stay until it collapses under its own weight because no one can remove it. Yes, which which seems ridiculous, but it's it's political reality in terms of in terms of how, in terms of that imbalance, the fact yeah, that, that it's just that way harder to way, kill something that's alive. what you have you have an agency mm-hmm. that cannot be stopped by the Congress, even if Congress wants to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this brings us to, so th- that was 1928. Seven years later, they're dealing with something much more serious. The, the National Industrial Recovery Act, uh, one of the things it does is it, it, gives industrial and trade associations the responsibility for drawing up, co- drawing up codes for fair competition. Um, people talk about you, know, you don't want businesses regulating themselves. Businesses, <laughs> clever businesses have always been doing that. I, I, they've always been the ones who are negotiating the terms of the charter under the king. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are negotiating mm-hmm. the, uh, you can, you can do that. Now, maybe not all of them do that. And certainly businesses have a tendency to be against restrictions to a degree and in many circumstances. But, but there's also a, uh, but big business uh, and government working together to protect 
big businesses a tale as old as time and not just in the united states you can go as you say you can go back to to medieval guilds who organized their power and got Mm -hmm. authorization from the king that allowed them to exercise a monopoly and that's very long-standing ancient practice yeah yeah we talk about crony capitalism the crony aspect of it of a group of people with business interests that are able to manipulate the powers that be for their own benefit is ancient. Now, it may look slightly different in capitalism than it does under other groups, but in principle, it's the exact same thing, the exact same incentives and the exact same appeals and reasoning that they make to the powers that be. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's always a problem. It's always a problem. It's always a tendency. So this, this act, they've got the industrial trade associations drawing up codes for fair competition. You, the goal, the explicit goals are to minimize competition, raise prices and restrict production. That's what unions attempt to do. It's for their benefit of their workers. It's a, it's a, people don't realize how they keep wages high for their employees is partially by restricting other people from competing and doing these other things. Uh, uh, some people are very, some socialists are very open about that and, and recognize that others have no idea. Then the president approves them on the basis that they meet certain standards. And in cases where uh, there wasn't a code built up by these industrial and trade associations, it gives this, uh, this National Industrial Recovery Act gives the president the power to prescribe his own codes in, quote, any transaction in or affecting interstate or foreign commerce, close quote, and enforce them by law. Um, this would give the president... <laughs> that that clause at this point is being interpreted in a way that he can basically do anything regarding the economy. The court strikes this down. The court does not allow this to stand. They go, there is not enough criteria here given by the legislature to limit the president's power. As, a, as before, we had, you want equal prices in these circumstances. That's much more closed. This is much more open-ended. And it's struck down. The thing is, this is during FDR. <laughs> and FDR... He, if you know things about uh, the, this, the New Deal and things, he really changes the way the United States works at a fundamental level in a way that, that no president has. Uh, there, there's, there's some competition in various ways, but in, in terms of just the scale and, and his influence, it's just massive. And within a decade, he's going to replace eight of the Supreme Court justices. Yeah, everyone everyone knows the story of how well not everyone, but most people are familiar with the story of how the FDR threatened to to pack the court, right? Which means to increase the number of justices in order to in order to manipulate the court. He ends up not doing that, but after threatening to do that, two things happen. The first thing that happens is the court starts to bend towards his will in large part to avoid that from happening, right? Their their cases do start to change a little bit. But the second thing that's happening is that over the course of his presidency, he ends up selecting eight Supreme Court justices, which means that when FDR leaves office, the Supreme Court is an FDR court. And people kind of leave out that detail when they talk about Supreme Court packing is that People argued that this was a case where the court won, you know, and the rule of law won against FDR. And that is just not the whole story. It's really <laughs> They won not. the battle, but they lost, they the, lost war. the war. He was yeah. there for long enough that he was able to replace eight of them. Uh, it really turned even the Supreme Court justices that were in his favor. When he threatened to pack the courts, it really turned them against it. 
which is why, partially why, this gets struck down, even though people who agreed with him were already a majority. Um, but then you replace eight of the nine, <laughs> and you can, you can get what you want at that point, uh, though he wasn't around to see a lot of it. The court does end up basically endorsing this kind of thing in the future. Um, not a complete overturn of this case. Um, there are some stipulations, uh, but the agencies that are created end up having the kind of power that's described here that the president is prevent prevented from having directly by this case. And you start to get, this is where you start to get the agencies. You get the, uh, the Federal Trade Commission is created around this time. And you get other groups like that spawning up. And, they, and, and looking at it as a practical problem, like this is, I've heard so many people say, the agencies are a fourth branch of government. We need to get rid of them. And I think, okay, what, which 90% of the things the government does would you like to eliminate? <laughs> because or, you, or who's going to who's going to who, or, yes yes who's going give, to give us an alternative solution yeah give us an alternative solution yeah, if, you, if you look at these i mean if you look at the top 10 agencies and the things that they decide on a weekly basis it's insane it's insane the number of decisions that are made even if this even if congress was a hundred percent in agreement about every single one of those issues they wouldn't come close to having the ability to pass laws regarding each of those each of those issues like not even looking at the political aspect just if they if their whole goal was just to to run these these branches they couldn't come close to doing it yeah it's there people have no idea how much of our government is ran by agencies it's it's the vast majority it's the overwhelming majority right it's it's it really is 90 plus percent of all laws and regulations are written by agencies, not by, uh, not by the legislature, not by your elected officials, which, which makes it worth considering, right? So where are these people coming from? Who are these people? If they're not elected, they're at least appointed by elected officials, right? Well, sort of. As these agencies grow and as their power begins to increase as they become more and more necessary, the Supreme Court keeps running into more and more issues with them. Uh, the, the powers in the government were separated for a reason. That's one of the fundamental things of the Constitution is that you have the legislative power mm -hmm. and it's not the executive power and it can't exercise executive power. And you have the executive agency, the executive power, and it can't exercise legislative power. And this separation of powers is the fundamental goal. So you get these agencies like the, the Federal Trade Commission. This, I'm looking at Humphrey's executive versus the United States, this, this case that talks about this. Um, in this case, the Federal Trade Commission is created deliberately by the legislature to exercise executive power outside of the president's authority and to do things that the legislature wants done and to do them in the way they want done. So they create this agency, an executive agency. It's a grant to the, the executive authority, and they stipulate the terms by which the officers in it are chosen and appointed. And the president goes to fire the head of it. And because he's not doing what the president wants, and the president's the head of the executive branch, this is an executive agency, right? Mm -hmm. This is this hearken of some of the debates around Trump and what he was trying to do with executive agencies. And the Supreme Court rules that actually he can't. He can't get rid of this guy. Because and and they they explore why. And this this case is some of the worst uh legal interpreting <laughs> 
of these of the many cases out there um, where they talk about actually the agency isn't doing it it isn't using executive power it's using legislative power and judicial power so it makes these laws which makes right? no it, sense <laughs> which really makes, makes these, no sense it really doesn't it, but this is how they, but think about this for a second because what to. they do is they make these laws and then they judge the people who violate them and and you go wait 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 well, hold up for a second. You mean they enforce the laws? They en- <laughs> Is that what you're trying to say? Somewhere in here was a word that usually applies with the enforcement of the laws, right? <laughs> they must find who these people are and punish them. Somewhere in here, enforcement is happening. But let's pretend for a second it's not. Are we okay with the group that legislates and then judges people according to its legislation? I just want to be clear that that we call the FBI agents cops, but really we should be calling them judges. Is that what you're saying? Because <laughs> they're, they're like not that. enforcing the law; they're judging it over there in their little agency. Right, and we won't we won't bore you further with an account of the the Supreme Court cases. There's there's so many more that no, can but, be talked about but, where where the power grows slightly. Right, but where that you, during you this something. period, there's this transition, and that the end result of the transition is that. You have agencies that are created by the legislative branch that are under, that are in the executive branch, Mm -hmm. but the president only has limited control. He does have some control because he does still appoint commissioners, you know, in in, in cases like the FTC, you know, the, the guy FDR wanted to fire was appointed by the previous president. And so it's still an executive branch still getting appointed by the president. Just like you have OSHA now that's still acting for the president, but there's also this weird autonomy, you know? Yeah. This this person who was appointed by the previous president can still follow through on the previous president's policies, and the new president can't stop him. That's weird. It's weird, and and you get this line where the president can't cross, Mm -hmm. where he has so much authority and no further, and why? Because it's, well, because it's quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial authority. And And so you go, well... Well, in that case, then the legislature mm-hmm. must control them, right? No. Not you get at all. further cases where the legislature tries to control them and they go, no, you can't do that because it's executive authority. And then you go, well, wait, <laughs> who are these people accountable to? <laughs> who, who in the elected government, if you believe in government by the consent of the people, that that's an important principle at all, then you end up with these people who are neither executive, legislative, or judicial, who make most of the, the the regulations and laws that affect society, and who are not accountable to the elected officials, be they legislative or executive. Now, the, the legislature could, could abolish them, right? They could be like, mm-hmm. this agency, which we created, is now gone. But before, they used to have other ways. They'd have, they'd have committees which these people reported to. They'd have, uh, yeah, they, they no longer to, have direct, they tried a variety of ways they, to directly control. But they do have, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, almost an emergency last shot at ending them if it ever gets to that point, but they can't actually regulate it or control it in a more reasonable right. way. It would be right, like if right. you were the CEO of a company and you had two options. You can let the company run or you can sell the company. And those are your only options. You know, you wouldn't yeah. call that person the CEO. You'd call that person an owner who no longer had any 
you know, who wasn't on the board, who was kicked out and still owned 51% of the stocks. And so they can do something drastic to end that company, but they can't do the little things. And that's maybe right. not a perfect example, but it gives you that, that, that idea. That idea that, that something is weird here. If, if, if this is, if there are three branches of government and they have been delegated power by one of these branches, then they should be accountable to that branch. But, oh, it, they're kind of in a gray area, so they're not really accountable to this one. And the, in it, in the Supreme Court decisions nibble away at the accountability that the legislature tries to keep. Uh, and, and eventually you get to the point where the legislature can create something that has more power than the, the legislator in some ways, more power than the executive, as OSHA has demonstrated here, judges its own cases. If you, if you have a, if you have a problem with one of these agencies, the way it works at this point, uh, is that if you violate OSHA's standards, you're tried by an OSHA court. Mm -hmm. right? There's a, there's a specific court system unique to OSHA by which they determine whether or not you violated their laws. It's separate from the, the, the law from the court system yeah, it's, that it's judges weird. the laws of the legislature. It's weird how it's, it's set a up. separate judiciary. Uh, it's, it's self-contained in ways that it shouldn't be. You can, you can eventually appeal your way out of it, mm -hmm. but the system where it's set up is so unfavorable to the people who are going up against it in ways that other courts can't be. There's, mm -hmm. there's, there are problems at every level of this. There's, there's problems that, that really mess things up. Well, and, and every and, step along the way here. And what's happening with OSHA today is a great example of that because what you have is OSHA is created as part of the Department of Labor. It's created by the legislative branch in order to fulfill both legislative and executive functions. It's created by the legislative branch, and so the Supreme Court allows it to do things that the executive branch is not normally allowed to do. And it's allowed to do things, as exemplified here, that the president himself can't do. And yet, here we have a situation where the president is using OSHA to do something that shouldn't be done by the president. You know what I mean? It would actually be simpler if it was... It would actually be better, not just simpler, it would be better if it were an official fourth branch of the government. Because the problem is, is that it's not. Sometimes it's in, it's more independent of the, the executive branch and the executive branch can't rein it in. And sometimes it is more cooperative with the executive branch and the executive branch can use that to use power that the executive branch was never meant to have. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And, and that also varies from agency to agency. You know, you've mm -hmm. got huge agencies, you know, the FBI, the FDA, you know. I mean, you look at COVID, the, F the FDA and the CDC, how much power did they wield in the past two years? It's actually a crazy amount. A crazy amount of, of the decisions that were being made were being made by these agencies and also the, the NIH. You know, these agencies were in so many ways calling the shots. You know, we weren't waiting to hear what Congress had to say. We were waiting to hear what the CDC had to say. You know, in terms of how we handled not just our everyday lives, but an actual crisis is we handled it through the use of agencies. They decided, and that's crazy, and they're still deciding. But the end result of this is that as the United States comes to face, you know, not just normal everyday life, but this massive crisis in terms of COVID, the, the leaders that we look to, 
the government, the United States government that was making the most decisions was not was not Congress, was not even the president. In most cases, it was the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, you know, these agencies. I mean, that's that's why Fauci came to fame is because he was, you know, because he's this representative of one of those agencies and those agencies are the ones who were deciding. And that's right. That's how we handled this crisis. It's through the use of agencies. And if you hadn't noticed, it wasn't exactly, it didn't exactly go well. To <laughs> it didn't. Well, and what you, what you think, the, the initial reasoning with creating these agencies was partially, was, as we saw at the beginning of that first constitutional case we looked at, was partially as an extension of solving the practical problem of the legislative, not just not having the time and the resource to do certain things. But there, there is, there were ulterior goals, one of which was to take key scientific decisions or what they saw as scientific as, as, as empirical decisions requiring expertise out of the hands of elected officials and put them in someone else's hands who could, who could, who was, you know, better suited for the job, which on its, on its face is a perfectly reasonable argument. Yeah, on its face, what you're describing is this this meritocratic rule by experts. Yes, where let's yes. just put let's let's get the experts, let's put them in charge, and let's let them run these these agencies. Right, but and and when you say that, I think, well, geez, you know what we should also do? We should also elect the best person for every job. Right? Why don't we do that? That seems like self evidently the best solution. Why are we ruled by halfwits? When we could be ruled by, <laughs> by philosopher kings, as Plato calls them, right? The selection problem is not, is, is a serious problem. It's a, it's a massive problem. Yeah. Cause what and you're beyond, saying is if we could choose experts to run these branches, then why can't we choose competent people to run Congress? Right. Right. If the problem is Congress is incompetent. Why do we think the people Congress will choose will be competent? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, and maybe, and maybe, maybe the world is such that incompetent people can recognize competence in others. But, but then why are the people electing bad elections? <laughs> At some point in here, you have to be like, wait, wait, wait. We're going to get something we don't want. We're going to get people who are not necessarily good at their job. And then you add to that the, the, this, we, we haven't talked about the incentives that then these bureaucrats face. These are these experts have some remarkably, they, their incentives do not align in the way that you would want them to. In the way that a market aligns the incentives of someone who wants to make money with someone who wants stuff, wants a good product, and the two of them can get together and they could work that out. The bureaucrat wants what? Fame? Prestige? The salary? What are the, what are the, you know, what are they getting out of this? And what is their incentive in the position to continue to do well? And how would we know even if they are doing well? Mm-hmm. Once the authority has been assumed to determine the standard, right? That's what, that's what a regulation is. It's a standard of good. It's a standard of what works. It's a standard of what's sufficient. And it, how do you judge the judges as the, as the question goes? That, that problem is not solved by appointing people with supposed expertise. That problem, if any, if anything is exasperated 
by having an official standard instead of competing standards. No, I mean, a great example of this is the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is supposed to be an apolitical body made up of not just experts, but truly the absolute best and brightest yeah. in the country. people. Mm-hmm. Hyper-competent, patriotic, apolitical judges who then are just going to look at the facts and make the best possible decisions for the country. That that was the goal, and that goal was executed accordingly. Like, the judges who were appointed were not nincompoops. No. And And despite that fact, the Supreme Court has done all sorts of strange and unexpected things because it's got weird incentives, because it doesn't have accountability. And anything that doesn't have accountability, you can never fully account for its actions, almost by definition, <laughs> right? That. Uh-huh. That you give that you give these apolitical experts carte blanche on deciding what the law means, and sometimes they're going to use that power very reasonably, and sometimes they're going to use that power to make very political decisions, and we've seen that with the Supreme Court. These right. these executive agencies are in, in many ways the same way that often they are staffed with experts, and sometimes they are staffed with nincompoops. And, and, and I, to say otherwise is, is I think inaccurate. I think you've got a healthy mix of both, but despite those experts, you still have the fact that there is no accountability. There is no clear incentive structure. There's no reporting to the people. And so you get a lot of weird things. Um, a great example of that, since we're already talking about it is OSHA. OSHA is something that had such reasonable purposes when it was created. You know, it's to keep workers safe. And yet, in actual execution, here we are decades later, how it actually goes about doing that is is illogical. You know, I, I, I work in a warehouse that, you know, is, is very involved with OSHA because, you know, from, from the tiniest workplace accident, OSHA gets involved, OSHA does inspections, and the OSHA inspectors this, come in and they always – and, you know, we talk about it here at work and we say, hey, if OSHA comes in, it's going to be very bad. I'm like, well, why is it going to be bad? Is this a super unsafe place to work? They're like, no. OSHA has quotas. The inspectors have quotas. They're going to come in and they're going to say that you have $200,000 worth of fines, but we're only going to fine you for $50,000 because that's our quota. And I'm like, well, well, I don't understand if they have if we have two hundred thousand dollars worth of fines because we're that unsafe, shouldn't they fine us the two hundred thousand dollars to make sure that we fix those problems? But no, that's not how it works because you've got these weird incentives set up. You got this this weird thing. I mean, there's there's fines for for whether a pallet is laying down flat or on it or standing up. And and who decided that a, a pallet standing up, you know, a four foot by four foot wood pallet weighs about, you know, 25, 30 pounds. Who decided? That's not even that much. It might be under 20 pounds. Who decided right. that that pallet Presumably it's going to tip its over on you. It's going to tip over. Which means you're going to get, it's going to be a fraction of that weight that's actually. And yeah, exactly. And so who decided that that being on its side is worth exactly $400 or $500? Who decided that that was the fine that was appropriate for that? It's all arbitrary. It's yeah. all arbitrary. It's just not operating like you'd expect it to operate. You know, if it were if it were a police matter, it'd be very different. You know, someone yeah. would file a complaint and say, hey, this is an unsafe place. The police would come in and say either yes or no. 
Yes, it's unsafe, in which case you have to fix it, and there might be fines, but our primary goal is to make sure you fix it. It's not to fine you. It's to stop the problem. But OSHA doesn't seem to operate that way. OSHA is weird. Every time we interact with OSHA in, in my workplace, I'm always weirded out by how it operates because it doesn't always feel like the goal of OSHA is to, set, is to protect the workers. It's, it is weird. I, I have yet to hear an explanation of an encounter with an agency that made sense to me, except the ones where the person representing the agency was like, you know, don't worry about it. I'm going to, I'm just, <laughs> you know, just like, like just violated their own rules, right? That, that was, those are the most reasonable encounters I've heard of with agencies. Um, it's so many of the things are, so much of it is arbitrary. So much of the safety standards are arbitrary. So much of it is for the same reasons that risk management in general is, uh, is, is so subjective. And the same reason that the value is fundamentally subjective, right? As you said, attaching prices to these things is, is inherently arbitrary. Now, the argument is, is that yes, but by and large, it's worth it because it's made us safer. And the question is not that whether or not regulation inherently makes us safer. The question is, uh, and having safety standards and those kind of things. The question is, by what mechanism do you do that effectively? And government agencies... Well, yeah, I would say there's two questions. There is the question of, does regulation make us yes, safer? Yes, 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 yes. There yeah, is the absolutely. question of, is regulation justified? And then, even if you've answered both those questions, the third question then has to be, okay, we need regulation. In what form is it going to be executed? And how is it going to be set up in order to make sure that it actually executes its function and doesn't end up with a whole bunch of nasty side effects? And to yes. answer that third question, this system we have now is clearly not working. Yes, I, th I think everyone should could agree on it. If we, if, you know, if we took the time and we really went into the details, I think anybody who did that would come away being like, this, this is really weird. This doesn't seem to be effective. And as far as the power concerns go, uh, you were, you were talking about how the Supreme Courts are insulated from consequences and, uh, and accountability by design, really deliberate mm -hmm. design in mm -hmm. the case of the Supreme Court. The agencies, not so much. That kind of happens spontaneously through a series of Supreme Court decisions and, and just kind of, uh, growth over the years. That, that was considered a virtue of the Supreme Court, that that was, that it was designed that way to protect them from the political fallout of unfavorable decisions and from the political machinations of the legislature and from the, the, the figurehead of the, the president and so on. But it's, it, it looks much less fine if they have massive power. <laughs> they have very little power and it's exercised in a way that is supposed to be more expertise and things that, that looks very different than what the Supreme Court has turned into. The, the intended realm of the Supreme Court was certainly much more narrow, at least in theory, <laughs> if not, maybe the practical principles end up leading to, to what it has become one way or another. There's certainly a case for that. Um, but, well, and maybe, but by, and maybe that's part of what I was arguing, Dan, is that if you fill, you fill a room full of experts yes. and you tell them, this is what we want you to do is to solve problems and you have no accountability. Yes. And then, then at some point, the experts in that room are going to say, well, then we should have more power. You know, it's, yes, it's, if, I agree. if we're effective in this area, we're going to be effective in that area and we might as well grab more. And I think that I was agree. a natural resort, result with the Supreme Court and is a natural result with these agencies. You know, yes, I was very well, the, intentional mm -hmm. when I made that comparison. No, and, and I agree with that completely that despite the, despite, uh, what, 
appeared to be uh, decent reasoning, at least, you know, sound some good reasons for why they designed the Supreme Court the way they did. I think the, its growth was essentially inevitable, and it's yeah, in and, and I'm the not and, I, and I'm not trying to accuse any of any of those who originally originally had that idea as being idiots for Foolish not seeing or, that. Yeah, Obviously, it's right. easy for us to see it now after the fact, and but it's also ridiculous for us not to use that wisdom now that we have it. You know, yes. we've got 2020. Let's use it. Yes, to see the, the way the systems have played out in the incentives and to say, wait, 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 uh, uh, immediately. I mean, uh, what is it? Marbury versus Madison, the first the first case where the Supreme Court uh, deliberately, who was it? Was it Marshall? Deliberately inserts himself into the conversation, makes a non-decision, a decision that had no impact on the law, but was an exercise in power to extend the the perceived scope of the Supreme Court. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it, was, it was immediate that there mm-hmm. was, that there was this, uh, step in. Almost everybody thinks that, that what they did was right, at least most of the legal scholars and things. Um, there is room for debate there, but, but to see it go so quickly in that direction <laughs> yeah. immediately is, is, uh, is telling. Uh, I, I, sometime we're going to have to make a, uh, a lengthy case for regulation outside of force. Like you were saying, the question of, is it justified in the sense of, can you justly impose things like, uh, safety standards through force, uh, is a, is a really interesting moral question. Mm-hmm. I think at least as, as a beginning point that we'll have to discuss another time, Amazon's five star review the way you go, you order a product, right? You can put a review if you would like to, and you can rate it and you can talk about it. While it can be gamed to some degree, and there have been occasional problems, I would submit that it is a far better regulation of quality products than anything that an agency has done or come up with. I think it's been, it's done far more to see that people get products that work and work well without and any, any force necessary. Without any force necessary. And of course, the immediate response to that is, well, it can be gamed, which you've already brought up. But, but the, the problem with that response <laughs> is that response is saying, compared to perfection, Amazon falls flat. But yes. that's not fair. In order to compare Amazon, we need to compare it against what we already have. So you have to say, okay, Amazon has the five-star system, and OSHA has quotas for pallets standing on their ends. Which of these systems is more effective, and what are the costs for the two systems? And when you compare it like that, I don't know if anyone's going to be able to make a solid argument for OSHA because it's, yes. it's just going to fall flat up against that system. Yes. Well, it's one of the things the FDA is a big one that, that has such power in, in the way that labels work. I would, I would love to see what a competitive market of, of labeling would come up with. There are some people who look at the labels and read what's in things and in the numbers that they give, mm-hmm. but I can imagine that there would be far more useful information you could put on there and a competitive system could allow competing labels and so you could get effective labeling right and you could get and you could also have standards and things there's the the market has never been allowed never been allowed we just pointed to a market example the market <laughs> people don't take seriously the possibility of market regulation even when there are living breathing examples of it being extremely effective and in, and it could be effective in ways that we, we haven't even explored because of the monopoly we've granted in regulation in some spheres, like labeling. Labeling, there's some, there's some range of things that you can do, but then a lot of the, the nutrition information, things like that is, is mandated. 
Um, it's, uh, it's, there's a clear standard that is given that is terrible and arbitrary and ineffective in so many ways <laughs> and based on an interpretation of health standards by experts that turned out to be completely wrong as we've learned from food pyramid things. And anyway, there, there's a, there's a whole mess of scientific and expertise error on a massive scale behind the labels that we get now that are still that have been updated but are still in some ways the same and so on uh, it, it can't adapt even with the even with the experts there watching it closely uh, the incentives to change are just not there whereas they would be in markets the incentive to create a new product that's better is always there where does that leave us in no, regards to agencies it leaves us back to back to looking at government. You know, our our whole podcast here is rethinking politics, and and we look at Congress and we look at the president and we look at the powers they have and we look at the things we can do in the Supreme Court. We need to consider the power of these agencies. You know, part of the reason government keeps growing and continues to grow is because, as Dan said, norm normally what happens is you know Congress creates a law, and that law does something. And then it can get struck down. But what we have here is Congress creates an agency, not a law. And that agency will grow and continue to grow unless it is, it is, it is you know, restricted through extreme measures by, by the legislature, which rarely happens. And so what happens is, is that if you sit on the federal government and really don't do anything, the size and scope and cost and intrusion of the federal government will continue to grow. Conservatives believe in just staving off the tide, and they've proven time and time again that that's not effective. This will continue to grow unless something changes, and in large part, that is because of these agencies and the independence and autonomy that they have. Yeah. Ironically, it was Republicans pushing the, the, this to a large degree initially. Um, uh, back at 1900 people like Teddy Roosevelt, but, uh, but at this point, the conservatives have served a, the purpose of a, of a semi useful break in some circumstances on these things, but it's been a break pedal is, is all it's, it's slowed. It's slowed some things. Um, and in part, I think that's because they, they, the conservative theories lack the economic principles that drove the change in the first place. The, the, uh, economic thinking that made clear from the beginning where this was going and the fact that planning an economy was never effective and the fact that so often in the face of, well, this makes the world safer, the conservatives have no answer. And so they tolerate it, right? They, they pick around the edges. They, they, they throw up protests regarding freedom. Well, it's kind of invasive. Ah, it's in the way of entrepreneurship. Ah, it's in the, uh, but have no place in which they can draw a line and say, no, 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 this was the line. This is the principle. This is where it consistently works. This is the foreseeable, you know, problems that would come mm -hmm. with it when you cross that line. This is the abuse of power. I mean, we, and, and I, and I also think that you could probably get a lot of, I'm at least hopeful that you could make a case to a lot of liberals that these agencies are not the way and that these agencies are not what they were looking for. Um, initially the people pushing them were people who were looking at the, the Russian economy and going, Look at how wonderful that is. <laughs> of course, we didn't know we, at that point, what we knew about the Russian economy was, was absolute bullcrap. Uh, it was, it was propaganda. Uh, and we then, had, we, we now know so much more about the problems of central planning. Um, 
in the problems of, of empowering experts to bypass the uh, legislative, the legislative branch and the, the electoral mechanical mechanics of the government. Um, but I don't think that they would be thrilled about this, the unelected people either. I hear a lot of young people who are, who are very much pro-socialism who look at that and they go, wow, these agencies are, there is a deep state. These agencies have way too much power. They're deciding things that are, that are for their best interest and for the best, mm-hmm. best interest of the special interests that be. They're not for the common working man. And they, they look at these same things that we're looking at and they go, wow, this harms workers, which is encouraging that they're, that they're at least looking at it. That they're seeing that there are problems here. Yeah, absolutely. That this is not, it's hard to make a case for these agencies. The only argument you can really make is that this is what we already have. This is what we already have, and I can't let the conservatives tear it down, or I can't let the... Well, and I think often it's the conservatives who are going to make that same argument, you know? Yes, The conservatives are upset about the vaccine mandate, but I'm not hearing conservatives saying, we shouldn't have had OSHA in the first place. You know what I mean? I mean, this (laughs) because conservatives were a fan of OSHA, you know what I mean? And as you said, it's not, it's, this is not necessarily a partisan issue. It's an issue of... This is the system as it is, and so much of the system is this way, but it is not for the people, as you were saying, not even for conservatives or not for liberals, but not for the people in general, because these systems, in the end, are only going to be good for themselves. Yeah, and, and I really want to, to make the case in, at some point and to try and get the word out there, because, because there's no, there doesn't appear to be an alternative if you believe that the regulations are necessary. I am so convinced that we would have better regulations through the market, not no regulations, better regulations using market mechanisms, which is, which is, but, but people even, think that but you've even got barring that Dan, if, even if you believe that the government should regulate certain aspects of life, there are ways to do that where you have mm-hmm. accountability, where you mm-hmm. have the ability to rein that in and you have the ability to control what's actually going on so that it doesn't become its own autonomous, completely independent organization. It's yeah, not yes. either or. There are other options here that that are more than viable. And there are whole segments of regulation that, as Dan's saying, are not just possible in the free market, but are so easy and logical va- in the free market. It would be market. easy and vastly superior. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. It's a... An, and no, and so many people don't even think that that's a possibility. They say, well, we will take these regulations because we must have regulations. And I go, yes, yeah, yes, you must, you want safety standards. You want, you want, uh, quality control. You want all these things. And all of those things can and would be handled, uh, because people want them. Like people, mm-hmm. the fact that everybody wants them is, is evidence enough that you would get them with or without the intervention of the direct intervention of yeah. the government. The question is, would it be better? And I think it would be much better, but that's a case we'll have to make another time. And with that, thank you for listening. Have a good one. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.